Hi, I'm Sylvain Berthelot, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is David Rose, and we're going to talk about occipital horn syndrome. Hi, David. How are you doing today? Hi, Sylvain. Yeah, very well, thank you. I had a, a busy few days and uh, an exciting few days, so um, I don't know if I can say, but I proposed to my now fiancé just a few days ago, so it's been very exciting and having lots of questions already about when we're getting married, so I'm sure I've got all this to look forward to. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been a really nice few days and, um, yeah, great time to chat. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now you need to make sure that the whole family is informed before they listen to the podcast. <laughs> we're, we're good, I've told them, I've told them. <laughs> good. Uh, so as I'm sure you know, uh, I love starting with a song. So what song did you choose and why? Well, this, this is a good question. I've never had this on a podcast before. So uh, the song that I chose was uh, Mr. Brightside by The Killers. So the reason I chose that, that was probably... I don't know, obviously up until I now got engaged, but that would have been kind of the best sort of part in my life. So going from sort of sixth form and university, so obviously a few years ago now, considering I'm 34, but um, I really enjoyed that part of my life. And um, whenever that song came on in like a pub or it, whenever we had it on in the car or in a nightclub or something, it's just quite a nostalgic song for me. And I think it's kind of become a bit of a classic. I think a lot of people like it from kind of all over the place and, uh, you know, it's obviously been, a, I think it probably came out in 2007, 2006. So it's obviously, it's not a new song anymore, but um, it's something that I always listen to at the gym. And it's always, I don't know, just an integral song. It's always, if I ever have to think about a song, it's normally that one. Um, I'm not the most musically kind of motivated person in the world. I like I like listening to music, but I'm not kind of one that goes to hundreds of concerts or anything. But um, certainly they would have been one of my favorite bands yeah, ever, I think. So that's that's the reason I chose that one. Nice. Um, <laughs> I like when you can refer, like, think of a song as almost like a comfort blanket. Yeah. Like when you listen to it, you know that you're, it's going to make you feel better. Yeah, it's very, it's very yeah. uplifting. I think that's, you know, that's the reason why I picked it. I felt it was always quite motivational, like when I was studying for my exams at that point, or just doing fun things with my friends. And, you know, that's kind of where I made my core friendships really was that part of my life. They're the ones that have always kind of been there and stuck around. So, um, yeah, that was a good, a really good part of my life for sure. Amazing. Uh, so we're talking about occipital horn syndrome. Uh, first thing that I find interesting is how this is kind of descriptive in a way of one of the symptoms, if I'm not wrong. Uh, could you talk about it a bit more about why it's called occipital horn? Uh, so yeah, that your, um, your occipital horns are kind of at the back of your neck on there. Uh, that's kind of where it comes from. So um it's a yeah like i say it's kind of unusual to have i think a name that is part of it there's not hundreds of conditions i don't think they're out there that have that kind of style of calling it by the name so uh when i got diagnosed with it you know i didn't even know what they were before i had that diagnosis i never even heard of it you know i think i've always been okay with science and biology and things but um until I actually got that genetic diagnosis i didn't really know what they were so um it's been a learning curve i think the whole time you know I've always been unwell and always had a diagnosis of something a little bit different beforehand, but kind of as it's gone on, I've always been happy to try and teach myself, I think, as it goes along. Okay. And why horn, like, what does it describe? Well, so what is, what is occipital horn syndrome, you mean? 
Yes. Yeah. yeah so, um, it's, it's very similar to an, another rare disease called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which has probably become a lot more well-known now. So when I was three, obviously 31 years ago, um, that's what I was told that I had at Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is obviously a big famous pediatric hospital in London, for those that don't know. Um, that's kind of where I spent a lot, a long, long, long parts of my childhood and teenagers. So that's where I had the name of it there. Um, it was it was kind of a loose diagnosis. It wasn't like categorically that's exactly what he has, but it was more kind of just something to work around. Um, and okay. it's actually very similar. So occipital horn syndrome is one of the older sort of really rare subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos. So I might get the numbers wrong, but I think there's now something like eight or nine different types of Ehlers-Danlos. There's the more common one, which is the hypermobility one, which is getting a lot more well recognized now, which is great. And then there's a few other ones, but there were even more of them before the classifications changed. So mine, occipital horn syndrome, was one of the other really rare subtypes. And then when the classifications changed, it kind of became its own thing. So, you know, medicine and, and genetics and things have moved in, and rare disease as well has obviously moved on a long way in 30 years. So although the hospital weren't exactly right, they were still very close. So I think that it was always quite nice to kind of grow up having some sort of diagnosis although it wasn't exactly the same it was close enough and I think that that you know it's not perfect but it kind of put me in a slightly more privileged position having some sort of idea whereas a lot of people go through their childhood having un sort of unexplained undiagnosed conditions so you know mine wasn't 100% the right thing but it was at least something to work from so I'm quite grateful that I had that at least. Yeah, yeah, we had someone on the podcast who has uh, Ehlers-Danlos, and it took them a l much longer time than it did to, to get diagnosed. Yeah, uh, it's a very it... tricky one. So, I mean, it's it is, now yeah. getting a lot more well-recognized, which is really yeah. good. Um, but I think, yeah, hopefully it will help the next kind of generation that are, you know, living with that condition rather than the people that are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s now, hopefully. And so is it... Thanks to the hospital you could go to that you think you, you had a relatively early diagnosis? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I kind of grew up in the southeast. So um, for anyone that's kind of not aware of it, there is quite a big divide. I think the people that live in the southeast tend to have slightly better medical care just because it's kind of nearer to, you know, London, Oxford and Cambridge. It's kind of the three big uh, sort of centres of excellence for rare disease. Obviously, there are other places in the north and things as well, but you know, growing up in the southeast and living here my whole life, you know, around London, Cambridge and Essex, like I've been very lucky that I've always been in the right sort of centres, you know, for um, Great Ormond Street in London. I went to yeah. um, Addenbrooke's, which is in Cambridge, which is obviously a part of Cambridge University. So, and then kind of other rare disease centres as well, kind of growing up, you know, from my adulthood as well. So I've been very lucky that, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's perfect by any means, but It's definitely living in the southeast, especially near Cambridge and London, it's a huge, and also just you know being near them in terms of cost to get there is easier. It's just a much better life, I think, if you can live in the southeast. I think that's just the the harsh reality of it. So I'm you know I'm very fortunate. I had no choice where I grew up. I was just lucky that I was born in London, lived in Cambridge. That's just the way mm -hmm. it was for me. Okay, and you talked about so your your initial diagnosis, which wasn't quite the right one but still help because eds is close to uh, to your condition when when did you get uh, diagnosed with occipital horn syndrome and how did you get to the right diagnosis 
Yeah, sure. So um, when I actually had the diagnosis, I was 27 um, and I worked backwards. So when I was kind of in my early 20s, kind of like um, graduating from university, that sort of time, um, my body was changing quite a lot. Anyway, I had quite a lot of um, big operations from, I don't know, let's say 16 to 20, 21 around then. Um, and as I grew older, I didn't really typically fit the what you would call like a, a typical EDS diagnosis. So, um, you know, since obviously now in hindsight, it's different because obviously you can use social media and things have changed quite a lot to find people. But from what I knew about Elostanos when I was kind of a teenager and an early 20s, and, you know, I didn't really know anyone with it. Whereas now, like I know loads of people, I didn't really look like someone that had Elostanos. So obviously Elostanos is way more than just having you know bendy joints that dislocate that's that's the the layman's terms you know that is part of elastan or sure but the actual syndrome part is you know the bladder kidney heart bowel everything internally that's where the kind of the real eds kind of comes out the high mobility is part of it um but it's that side so you know also it was quite unusual from what i knew being a man having eds so i think now i think i read somewhere that it's maybe 80 to 90 percent people that have eds are females so whether that's just the men um, don't present the same way or they're not, you know, there's a bit of a thing of men don't talk about their health and don't get things tested and stuff. So that could probably add towards it. Um, now it's getting more recognized. Maybe there are a lot more men that are living with it and never realized they were. So I don't know how kind of um, accurate that statistic is, but I, I remember reading something about that. Um, so yeah, I just didn't really kind of fit the the diagnostic part. You know, I was very flexible, but Probably now, in comparison to some people, it's not anywhere near the same. And you know, I didn't really dislocate much. I didn't really kind of fit. Apart from the internal stuff, my kind of exterior didn't really quite fit it. Um, okay. So I started having genetic genetics testing in Cambridge when I was about twenty-four. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, initially, like, like everyone does, you kind of go in with your parents at that point, um, and then my sister and my uh, cousins on my mum's side and things. We tried to see if there was any kind of family history. So um, I'm sure they won't mind, but my mum's side of the family have a few um, problems with like kidneys and ovaries and things, but nothing that similar to what I've got or anything. So there's, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a family history on my mum's on my side, but nothing on my dad's. Um, you know, my mum has a form of arthritis called ankylosing spondylitis. Again, just a coincidence, nothing to do with what I've got. Um, my dad is very healthy, apart from a few other sort of high blood pressure and nothing sort of too significant. So it was nothing really obvious from my parents' side. And then um, there was a few things they tested for. There was something called short syndrome, which I never heard of. Uh, Marfan syndrome was was originally chucked around, but obviously, you know, I, I'm only five foot eight. I'm 173 centimeters, so I'm not tall like the typical Marfan. Uh, you know, lots of um, yeah. NBA basketball players have that, but that's linked to Los Danos quite closely. Um, I'm not sure why it is, but there is a lot of people that have EDS that have that as well. So that was looked at, but obviously, quite quickly dismissed and then um through the testing they found that I, that I have this the gene called a- ATP7A which is the gene for um occipital horn so it took about three years so I think that's um about right it's maybe slightly quicker than average actually for the sort of genetics part of things so um didn't take too long you know I was quite lucky really um and then also as well kind of in a privileged position that I was already in that hospital and I wasn't starting from scratch, you know, that's something we, if we've got time we can talk about. But I know for people now that are kind of navigating rare disease sort of since COVID's happened, it's very different accessing things. So this was thankfully pre-COVID and, you know, lucky to get an answer, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to, to talk about it a bit later. Uh, so has it changed anything having uh, this new diagnosis or not? 
Um, yes and no. So for different things, so I think um, I, I often wonder what clinicians clinicians sometimes think when you get a name for something. So I had the name of you know my actual rare disease, and it's great that I know what it actually is. But in reality, has it really changed anything? Probably not, because from a kind of healthcare perspective, no, because there's no cure for it. There's no treatment, yeah. there's no research. Having the name for it is great, but it doesn't really change anything. Um, probably one of the, the things that we don't talk about enough actually was the time that I had it. So um, I was 27, obviously, sort of when I had the name and 24 when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I was single and, you know, didn't really know if I wanted kids. I never, I've never really been that paternal, but wasn't entirely ruling out. Whereas as I've got older, I've realised I don't want kids. Um, but obviously now, you know, I've been with part, uh, my partner for five years, and obviously I think you know Sarah definitely did want to have kids at some point, and I knew that having this genetic thing would be a problem. So you know, we're not going to have kids, and I feel bad about that. Um, but having that diagnosis was a good thing because at least I knew, I guess, that I had this genetic condition. And um, I think the time of getting your genetic disease makes a difference. And, you know, for women in their kind of early 20s might be different from someone that's already had kids and things. So there's lots of different variables to it. But for me personally, I think in terms of actually getting better healthcare, it hasn't changed anything. But having the name for it and potentially knowing that I could pass it on or all those kind of variables, it does help to have a name. And, you know, nobody has a clue what it is. People kind of have a bit of an idea about Ellis Stanlos now, um, which is great. You know, I never had that growing up. You know, no one knew what it was, whereas now it's getting better recognised, which is brilliant. But having the name for it doesn't really change anything because realistically, whenever I go to places, it's always like, oh, it's like Ellis Stanlos, if you've heard of that. And then most of the time someone's heard of it. So it hasn't really changed an awful lot, if I'm honest. No, okay. You mentioned a rarer um subtype of Ehlers Danlos. Yeah. How rare is it? Do you know how many people have it? I was told 20. I mean, I found five other people through social media. So I would say okay. there's less, I don't know. Um, it could be one of them things where probably quite likely there are a lot more people living with it that are either misdiagnosed slightly like I was or living in parts of the world, you know, where the healthcare is not as good, maybe in South America or Southeast Asia or something where, you know, the the level of genetics isn't the same as what it is in parts of the Western world. So um, there could well be people living with it in other parts of the world that have no idea they've got it as well. I mean, it's certainly very rare, but whether it's six, seven, 20 people, I don't know. I'm not too sure. But I I found a very, very tiny community through Instagram, basically. Okay. How important is it to have a community? You referred earlier about like knowing a lot of people who have so how is it important how important is it for you i think it is important because i've had to come at it from a different perspective so obviously there's nothing really you know i've got a very small tiny community that we kind of dip in and out of for the occipital horn part Mm -hmm. however like i have a few more things that aren't that rare so i've got something called pops which is uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome so that's not rare at all but quite a lot of people with connective tissue disorders seem to have it so you know, I found a community through that. Um, mm-hmm. I've still made friends with people with Ella Standos. Um, I have, a, you know, I've been using a catheter for 27 years. And so I'm kind of quite uh, a big part of the kid- the kidney and the bladder community and the catheter community. So I found like lots of little pockets of communities for the different parts of my health, but not really one specifically for occipital horn, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think uh-huh. they are important because, you know, it's useful to share, you know, especially for the things that I've seen for other rare diseases where they share ideas, they share 
research that's happening they share okay. fun events meet up things you know i think it is important to have that if you can yeah yeah is it something that in a way makes you feel better or like do you feel like you can can talk to people from that community about things you can talk to others or not yeah i think so. yeah. You know, especially like uh, i'd say especially like within the cafeteria community because you know quite a lot of people that have the kind of cafeteria that i have they have they also seem to have rare diseases as well and other kind of health conditions that have led to them leading a cafeteria it's lots of different routes to using a cafeteria obviously um, you know, just talking to them about like funny things that have happened and things that we try and normalize because there's, there is a stigma still against me with colostomy bags and uh, catheters and things. So I think we've had, I've had a real good time being part of that community. And it's the same with other, you know, with the EDS and the POTS communities and things like I've, it's been useful to share ideas. And I picked up a few kind of life hacks and things with them for traveling or just for work life and things. Okay. So, you know, it is important having that. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I do have it for the, for the other parts of my life. I kind of just wish I had a bigger one, I guess, for the, for the really rare part. I think having this sort of ultra, ultra rare condition is kind of the novelty's worn off. Like, I think it was quite interesting for a couple of years and it was like, oh, it's really unusual. You know, the, you are really rare at that point. But actually now the novelty's worn off because I want to find more people. I wish there were more things to make my life better that doesn't currently exist. So, you know, it was fun, well, I say fun loosely for a couple of years. Now I'm actually quite bored of it. And I just wish that I didn't have that. And I had something more common where yeah. I might be able to get, you know, more research. That's what I'm looking for, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Uh, you mentioned a catheter. Why do you need the catheter? So, um, the, obviously with living with occipital horn or, you know, Ehlers Danlos, the, the connective tissue in my body doesn't really work very well. So it's the same as having Ehlers Danlos. It's, everything is floppy. So that's why I've got problems with my heart and the bladder. So in my bladder, um, obviously your bladder is like a balloon and because the connective tissue is terrible and there's no kind of muscle keeping it taut, the bladder expanded. So it's got like a little pocket on the side of it. It's called a diverticular. And it basically means that the urine comes out of that and goes into this pocket. And if I was to pee normally, there's not enough um, the normal process wouldn't get rid of enough urine. So that's why you leave these uh, okay. sort of stale parts. And that's why you used to get lots of infections and things. Mm -hmm. So having the catheter has, has kind of reduced the uh, infection rate. I mean, it's still not perfect by any means, but that was the reason for having it. Cause I just, there's not enough muscle to basically push the urine out and also to get rid of the bladder, uh, the bladder diverticular to get the other urine out that seems to get st stuck in there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Is it the same with Ehlers Danlos? Yeah, I think quite yeah. a lot of people with Ehlers Danlos have a um, something, some sort of type of catheter. Obviously, there's quite a few different kinds of catheters these days, but yeah, it's, I think it's relatively common that or the other way around and having a colostomy bag. So mm -hmm. it's okay. quite common. Um, so you mentioned earlier about uh, diagnosis, which was pre-COVID and, and you feel like it's, or you've heard that it's different now uh, in the post-COVID era. Would you like to expand a bit on that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, just for me personally, like now I've obviously got this name of something, you yeah. know, if anything, it's kind of gone backwards because lots of centers are shutting down, lots of uh, the, the things that I work, was having to kind of help a little bit, you know, things just like physiotherapy and occupational therapy and hydrotherapy, like that, I can't get any of that now. It's all canceled basically. So the healthcare setting, even just for those sort of things are very different now. And the waiting time for things that are meant to be a priority seems to be taking forever or they're just getting canceled. So all the little things that kind of help 
sort of chip away at my health seems to not be available to me anymore. And I'm sort of supposed to be a priority. So I, I really have no idea how people are coping that aren't in inverters a priority for things at the moment. You know, it's, it is very hard to access things. I think that, you know, I don't think, well, I don't know obviously exactly about the genetics thing, but I would imagine that anyone that is kind of going through genetics testing now is probably being pushed to the back of the line and things are not as easy as it was to get, you know, the genetics testing referral, probably what I had, you know, a few years ago to what it is now. Okay. Well, I didn't know it has had such an impact on, on the healthcare system. It was very visible, obviously, in the peak of COVID. Yeah. But I didn't know it had had such a long-term impact, actually. Yeah. That's, what, that's only kind of what I'm hearing from other people, but it does yeah. seem very difficult to get it. Is it something specific to the UK or do you hear something similar from... I would probably think it's other, everywhere. I think obviously yeah. the UK at the moment is quite tricky with what's happening and the sort of the state of what's happening with the NHS. So I don't know exactly if it's the same everywhere, but I would imagine it if it's kind of bad here, I would imagine it's not any, not much better anywhere else at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you talked about uh, one of your symptoms, at least, uh, about your, your bladder and your muscles. Um what other symptoms do you have? How does it affect you? Um, the, from the bladder perspective or just... No, from, from um, the occipital horn syndrome. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of lots of things, really. So, um, you know, my actual uh, whole musculoskeletal system looks very different. Like my shoulders are sort of permanently dislocated the wrong way, the same as my elbow joint. So, um, you know, my knees and ankles are the same. They're twisted the wrong way. So from a, just looking at me from a, uh, the outside, it looks very different. Um, okay. The Obviously, from an internal perspective, obviously, I've mentioned the catheter and um, you know, I had a kidney removed about a decade ago from just the function dipping so much. And um, obviously, the POTS diagnosis isn't particularly new by any means. I've always had that. So it's, you know, all them things kind of put together make life a bit tricky. Plus, obviously, it's kind of long-term chronic pain. So obviously, all my joints feel pretty bad most days. Uh, brain fog from the pain, but plus also being... You know, on quite strong painkillers for twenty plus years, and you know, it's it's just it's kind of a typical like connective tissue uh, disorder, really, in the sense that it's it's kind of everything, really. It's just lots of pain, lots of fatigue, and you know, struggling to kind of form a routine. Like I try and keep a good routine. I try and exercise quite a lot, and I try and do the things that you're supposed to. But then it's a kind of uh, it's, it's hard to get the balance right because I feel like I exercise quite a lot at the moment and I've really got back into it through yoga and been playing a lot of football again and going to the gym but then equally if I slightly overdo it I then I feel like it goes the opposite way so it's very hard to find the right balance I think with exercise but certainly exercise is a big part of my life and I think there's that part to it but also it's good for my mental health as well because you know I've always struggled with it um Again, typical man, never really spoke about it properly. Um, I don't know how familiar this sounds from other guests, but um, kind of, familiar, yeah. you know, didn't really, I think when I graduated uni sort of, you know, 13 years ago or so, um, I didn't really kind of acknowledge how, you know, I knew I was struggling physically because I was quite poorly at that point. It, you know, it always goes up and down, but mentally I was really struggling. And I think that it was a mix of obviously like finding a way in the world and realizing you're going to work and doing all these things. And a plus realizing that my body was really struggling and has sort of declined since then. So it was quite hard to navigate that. But I think, you know, as a young man, I was really bad at acknowledging my mental health and never really took it seriously and didn't really understand it. And then kind of I had, I would call it you know, a mental health breakdown. I never, didn't really realize that's what it was 
until looking back on it, I kind of just really shut myself away for a couple of years, which was really unlike me. Um, but, you know, I've kind of dealt with it a lot better. I've been getting a lot of help for it. And, you know, I've been very lucky the things that I've accessed and um, I've been having kind of rare disease specific mental health counselling, which has been the best thing uh, that I've ever done in terms of from a clinical perspective. Obviously, I'm very lucky that I've got, you know, amazing family and friends that have helped me along the way and a partner, obviously, but the the, men, the mental health counselling has been really good. And I don't think many people have that. So I'm not sure if any, you've had it, had anyone that's had that yet, but um, I certainly haven't no. really met many people. No, no, that's that's interesting. And the fact that it's rare disease specific, yeah. that that's really good to hear because I don't think people realize, and myself, obviously, I don't necessarily realize either, but hearing from yourself and other patients with rare diseases, it, it affects you differently because you don't necessarily have a treatment, you don't necessarily have much research on your yeah. condition. So that's very, very good to hear. It was good. I tried just briefly. I, I did try uh, kind of the obvious things like um, CBT, uh, like cognitive behavioral therapy. I tried that. Yeah. I kind of liked the concept, but it didn't really take into account my health and the fluctuations. So I think, you know, CBT, I know it's used for loads of different things and I think it could work for other stuff. But for me personally, I struggled with, with it for what I was looking for. And I tried kind of like group, uh, like pain management kind of therapy things again, like I made a couple of friends from it, which was great, but I didn't really enjoy that concept. I just couldn't really click with it. But for this, you know, I'm very lucky that, again, it's the privilege of being, you know, that's from Cambridge. I'm very lucky that, you know, I have that option available to me. And that, that has been really good because it's helped me kind of like compartmentalize things a little bit. And um, you know, I'm very lucky that, you know, I was, I was having, I started that kind of, uh, kind of in the middle of COVID really, um, you know, and I had quite a few sessions and I can kind of get it back again if I need it to. So that's been really good and it's really helped me kind of structure my life. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Oh, that's great. Uh, so you talked about pain. Uh, you mentioned it several times. Is it pain linked to your joints or is it? Uh, it's really both. I mean, it's kind of one of them things you can kind of toss a coin each day and see what it's going to be because it's it's either my bladder or kidney kind of flaring up or it's the the joint pain either from after the gym or just the actual pain of walking too far or it's, it's it's constant and it's always really unpredictable and it's always there's always some level of pain and it's kind of having to again around exercise or you have to kind of plan your day as much as you can around it but yeah. as anyone with a rare disease or chronic health condition knows you you know you can try and plan things all you want but you never know really what's going to happen each day until you wake up or you might feel really good the day you go to bed and then you don't sleep overnight because you have a bladder flare up or something. So mm, it is very yeah. difficult to plan things. And, you, you know, I'm trying to be as organized as I can, but it's impossible because you can never really predict it. You know, I think you get kind of good at knowing your body and you sometimes can predict what's going to happen. I'm quite good at guessing my bladder stuff usually because that's a bit more of an obvious thing. But the joint pain, it really is random. Like sometimes I could walk a long way and then feel fine the next day. And then the other days I could barely do anything and feel terrible the next day. So there's never really like yeah. a precise way around it, unfortunately. Yeah. And has that stopped you, has that stopped you from being able to do certain sports? I know there's a, with errors downloads, there's a higher risk of injury. Is it the same yeah. for you? Um, so when I was kind of growing up, like I tried to, well, my parents kind of tried to avoid me doing uh, contact sports as much as possible. Okay. 
Um, and I did that as much as I could. I mean, I still did it. I still messed about with my friends. So they were never going to stop it completely. Uh, and obviously, you know, I've always been on the sort of smaller side. So I've always been one of the smallest. So when I played football and I've, you know, even football is a contact sport to some extent, you know, I've always been typically the smallest or at least one of the smallest. So, um, I've always been used to that, but yeah, kind of avoiding contact sports, um, kind of in a weird way, like having high mobility is an advantage in something. So, um, I swim casually, but I think if you actually look at quite a lot of swimmers, a lot of them have quite uh, extreme hyper mobility. I don't, there was a, a what's that guy's name? Michael Phelps. I don't know if you remember him. The swimmer. Yeah, yeah, I People do. People were talking about him potentially having Erlos Danlos because he kind of looks okay. a bit like that. Um, so he might, you know, obviously there's lots of discussions about different celebrities, but actually in some sports, it can actually help. You know, gymnastics is another example. I think that it can help you. So, yeah, you know, I've kind of, it can be useful for some things, but for, you know, if I'm, if I'm weight training or doing something like that, uh, even yoga as well, yoga is a funny one because everyone tells you to do it, but actually some of the movements, they're so easy, you know, they're meant to be difficult because you've got the natural high mobility. You can stretch too far because you don't know you're doing it. And that's the problem. Even just sitting at certain angles, like I make Sarah feel really uncomfortable how I bend my hands, but that's really, that's really comfortable for me to sit, but I know it's not normal. So even just doing day to day things like that you can damage your joints and it's, it's very frustrating, but I think a lot of people like sports as, you know, as what I was saying, it's a mental health thing as much as something else. either watching sports or playing sports is a huge part of my kind of mental health um, consistency, I think. Yeah. 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 Well, so it's tricky. <laughs> it, it is, but at least like, it's good to hear that you can still manage to do sports uh, yeah. rather than not being able to do any of it. Yeah. Just, just briefly, I think so. Like I've, I never really knew it existed, but I've been playing kind of disability specific football for the last kind of 18 months or so. So that's been really good. I didn't know all these things existed. I kind of, I knew about the Paralympics and things, but yeah. on a sort of smaller scale, I didn't realize that there, these, these things existed. I kind of, I knew about the wheelchair football and things, but I didn't realize kind of like, you know, ambulatory disabled, like kind of pan disability football existed. You know, it's not just football. There's all sorts of different sports you can do. So, um, you know, that's been really, really good fun. Again, made some friends as well recently from that. So, I, you know, I, I would highly encourage anyone that's kind of um, that's listening that has a rare disease that maybe wants to try and get back into sports or try something new, like search it, that can that sport plus disability, and you'll be surprised kind of what's what's around. So certainly worth looking into for sure. So see, that that's why I like doing this podcast because that's something that you don't hear about. Mm. Unless you do, I guess, quite a lot of research, uh, and and it sounds like it's something that a lot of people could benefit from. Yeah, I think it's you know the, yeah. the Paralympics certainly in 2012 when it was in London that made a big uh, positive change in disability mm. sports in the UK. Yeah. But again, I think a lot of people only think it's kind of that high, high elite level, like the Paralympic level. Yeah. There's, there are so many levels below that as well. It's not just the kind of the top top athletes that you see. There's kind of very casual there's there's still very competitive football which is what i'm doing it's still competitive but you're playing against other people with different different disabilities so you're you know the the comf you feel more comfortable because it's not people that are able-bodied playing against you it's mm -hmm. kind of other people that have other disabilities so i think it's just a yeah. nicer environment to play in for sure yeah oh, that's great Uh, I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, that you uh, had to have a kidney removed. Yeah. Are you at risk of having more problems with your other kidney? I always thought I was. So obviously I get the um, the kind of renal check 
once a year, sometimes it's twice a year, depending on what's happened in that time. So that was, um, yeah, 2011, so sort of 12 years ago now. Um, and the reason I had that taken out was because the function, uh, I think it's quite common with kidney sort of conditions and kidney diseases that they de- they deteriorate really quickly. So it's not mm-hmm. something that you kind of gradually watch fade away. Like I've always had problems with my bladder um, and kidneys and it's not a new, it wasn't a new s- surprise by any means, but it kind of deteriorated extremely quickly within six months or a year or so. So it wasn't something that snuck up on us as such, but it was, yeah, it was a bit unusual. So um, they've always said that obviously I am going to be at risk of obviously now having just one kidney. Um, obviously people are born with one kidney. That's not that unusual to have one. And obviously people can, um, you know, offer their own kidney and, and then they'll obviously live with one as well. So mm-hmm. um, realistically, I'm sure something will go wrong because, it's kind of part of a bigger system of things that don't really work particularly well uh, within my body. So I would assume that it won't last forever and I'll have to have either dialysis or um, a transplant. And I'm kind of open to that idea because I, I can see that coming. It's not, it won't be a surprise for me. Okay. But oh, touch wood at the moment, it seems to be okay. Uh, for yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. But you seem to be very level headed about it. Yeah. I think if just briefly, I think if I've got time, I think the reason why is obviously lots of things, but I think because I've always grown up having lots of different health problems and it's not been, I've literally from day one of my life, I was having things and had surgeries at a couple of weeks old. Like it's not, it's not unusual for me. I like, I've only ever known to be like this and have good days and bad days and medium days. Like it's never been any different. So although it's been frustrating and it's not easy, like I put a brave face on a lot of this, like it's not easy really at all, but because I don't know any different and I know that, it's a you know degenerative condition. It's only going to ever stay the same or get worse. So I have to just make the best of a bad situation. I know it sounds easy because it's not like, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy as well, because that's frustrating when people make out like it's easy because it really isn't easy, but you know, you just have to try and find things around it to make it better. I think because I don't know any different, it's potentially an advantage over someone that might've had, let's say long COVID that had been perfectly healthy for a long time. And then they contracted COVID and their life is upside down now because it's so different. Yeah. So, um, or, you know, or getting a cancer diagnosis out of nowhere that all those sorts of things mm-hmm. are very different because you've not, you've not necessarily had the tools to prepare for it. Whereas people that have always lived with something, you kind of can maybe adapt to another diagnosis easier because you've already got something else kind of going on. So that's how I've, I've dealt with it. And I know I'm very lucky that again, friends and family and my partner, like it's made life, 10 times easier and and accessing the thing, you know, it's not perfect what I can access these days, but I'm lucky that I get some things, let's say. So I am, I'm very lucky. I'm aware of that. Yeah. Well, good. And uh, it stays stays (laughs) like that. Uh, I'd like to switch topic if you don't mind. Uh, So uh, you mentioned uh, in our preparation that you work for rare revolution magazine. Yeah. It sounds very interesting just by the name. Uh, would you like to share what you do uh, just like yourself in Rare Revolution magazine? Yeah, and, sure. And so um, this was actually kind of my first kind of return to work. So it was actually really um, an exciting opportunity when it came up. So um, just really briefly, like I studied economics at university, always wanted to kind of work in finance and it didn't really work for various reasons because of my health. And I tried a few different things kind of in between then and over the years. but. Um, before I got this job, um, I started doing lots of talks within rare disease. So obviously in Cambridge, I was doing some talks to the charities that are there, um, Beacon and, and Medics for Rare Diseases and uh, Cambridge Rare Disease Network, all these 
organizations that I found that are kind of around the Southeast and you know, started doing that, really enjoyed it, started finding more rare disease conferences. And then uh, I came aware of the magazine. They were hiring an intern at that point to help with like the marketing and social media. So I uh, applied for that, got it. Um, and then kind of quickly after that, started doing business development rather than that part of the business. So um, my job is to try and talk to people that work in pharmaceutical industry and biotechs and um, medical device manufacturers and charities, patients, you know, literally every kind of stakeholder um, within rare disease. So although we're kind of based in the UK, we kind of deal with everyone literally all over the world, all different okay. places. So it's really interesting. Like I get to meet lots of different people every day and different parts of the world. So um, I'm very thankful that I've got this job because I think I never really, you know, full disclosure, my boss will know, like I never really planned to work in rare disease. It wasn't necessarily what I thought I would do, but uh, without being kind of cliche, I think I probably was meant to be doing this. I think I found something that I really enjoy. I love working in, in the rare disease space. I think that, you know, I've met quite a lot of people that also have a rare disease or their family members have a rare disease. And it, it seemed even people within pharmaceuticals as well, like I've met quite a lot of them that have a, a personal connection to rare as well. So I think being yeah. in this space is great. And, you know, you just meet lots of inspiring people and lots of people that work within companies that are doing great things as well. So I think collectively, I see even just in the five years or so that I've been doing it, um, and maybe the last sort of eight or nine doing the talks, like I've, you know, within that time, I've seen quite a big shift. And I think that although rare disease is perfect and it never will be like, like the technology side of things and AI and all these kind of exciting things that are happening in gene therapies and such, like, you know, it's going to give the next generation of people with rare disease a big advantage, hopefully for them. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be kind of working for a company that also kind of uh, have been amazing with my health as well. So, you know, lots of people with rare diseases find it hard to work because yeah. uh, of the employer and the unpredictableness mm -hmm. of their health. So, you know, I've been very lucky that I've been working for a great company that are fine with me taking days off for my health or for hospital appointments or switching things around. So uh, I'm very lucky um, and we get to travel to lots of cool conferences as well. So, um, so yeah, it's a great job. Very lucky to be working with people that are on the same wavelength as me and really good fun. So uh, very thankful for that. I've not always had that before. So yeah, I'm aware of my my, my luck on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And what's the goal of Rare Revolution magazine? Yeah, so it was it was founded by obviously my my two bosses. So one of them, son, has a, a really ultra rare disease as well. It's called xeradoma pigmentosum, which is um, a rare skin condition. So it's uh, like an allergy to UV lighting, essentially. So they were running um, a patient group. I think they've done it for they might get angry if I'm going wrong. I think it's 11 years now, maybe. Um, so quite a long time. And obviously when they were doing that, obviously meeting lots of different people, realized there wasn't a rare disease publication that existed. You know, there's always been sort of disability things or pharmaceutical magazines or science magazines and things, but there wasn't a rare disease one. So that was yeah. the kind of motivation behind setting it up. And, you know, how many, so it's been going for a long time now. And I think that it just shows that there is a need for it. And, you know, the pharmaceutical companies like it, the patients like it, the everyone in between medical students, researchers, like we have kind of contributions from people like all over the world, even though we're kind of based in the UK. So it's a huge part in the US and obviously in the UK and kind of sort of scatterings everywhere. Else. So, um, you know, it's, it's great that it exists. And I think it's a nice platform. Obviously it's, it's coming from me, but I think because it, focuses on rare disease in general it's not just the big rare diseases it also gives a voice for, you know for people like me that have six seven people in the world of it yeah. it's a chance you know with no patient groups with no infrastructure it gives a, a people a chance people like me that have something that rare that nobody has the real interest in to talk about it and to try and 
raise awareness or trying to connect the dots. So I think it is a it is a great publication if I'm biased, and I think we cover a lot of great topics. So um, you know, it's a it's a it's a great magazine, and um, yeah, check it out if you can. Yeah, I will. I will. And Thank you. Like, I'm glad we we got the opportunity for you to share about it because it sounds incredible and something that is needed. Yeah. Thank you, Silva. I appreciate it. Uh, so I, we're reaching uh, the, the end of the podcast. And uh, as everyone who listens regularly knows, I love to ask this question. Uh, so... Uh, I'm nervous now. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> so much anticipation. <laughs> um, what's your happy place? So a place where you feel at peace and that you really like going back to. Uh, I've got two. I think I've got in different ways. If I'm going to be greedy, I'm going to have two. So yeah. uh, recently, Sarah and I had um, a spa day, which is something that I know is, is very common. But for me, uh, it was like the perfect day out like obviously um it was so relaxing the the heat from the pool and things it, the 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 swimming pool that we was in was like 34 degrees something so it's really hot pool yeah. amazing for my joints it was such a relaxing day like we had literally just endless cups of tea like and we had like loads of nice cakes we sat outside in the garden on the sun lounges it's in like a kind of stately home thing near where we live and it was just amazing like it was just such a lovely day like the you know that was literally just a few days before I proposed to her so I was quite nervous but that you know yeah. in particular that was a stressful one but we've done a few spa days and hope to do a few more and I think that for me is my happy place with with Sarah and I think that the thing that I like to see my dad is going to football so since we were since I was five or six we've been going to a team called Leighton Orient so they're not a big team it's not like Liverpool or Chelsea that people know about it's just a small team in reality uh, in London but we've been going for a long time and that's always been like my dad and I's bonding time you know, every wow. Saturday or every other Saturday, that has always been, you know, even though it's kind of stressful watching football and I get annoyed watching it sometimes, but for me, that's my kind of release. And, you know, I like going with my dad and it's, it's always been a good fun for us. So that they're my two, if I can be greedy. So one with Sarah and one for my dad, different, right. diff completely different days out, completely different atmospheres, but both of them in their own way, really important to me. Yeah. And such a, a lovely note to finish on. Thank you. Thank for you. <laughs> Well, uh, David, it's been amazing having you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, about your condition. And I feel like you've given a, a few tips about like what you do to uh, look after your mental health and still be active with your condition. So thank you. Hopefully it's going to be helpful for others. Appreciate um, it. So yeah, thank you for joining the show and uh, all the best for the wedding planning thank you very much yeah thank, thanks again for having me on I've, I've enjoyed it i love the questions it had a nice flow so um it's it a nice chance for me to kind of just remind myself i think in in a way what i'm actually doing it's nice for someone to kind of feed it back to you that i seem to be doing it on the right way so i appreciate your time and um yeah thanks again for having me on it's been good, good fun <laughs>